Well, hello and good evening, everyone, and welcome to this BTOG webinar. We're going to be doing an update on the great events that occurred at ESMO 2023. It was a fantastic meeting, and we are joined today by three learned experts to talk you through all the data that has been presented. We're joined by Dr. Yvonne Summers, who's Consultant Medical Oncologist at the Christie uh, NHS Foundation Trust, Dr. Ria Shah is Consultant Medical Oncologist at the Kent Cancer Centre, and also Dr. Tom Newson-Davis, uh, who is Consultant Medical Oncologist at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. As ever, uh, BTOG is always here for your needs. Uh, Dawn and Gina are here at the email and all our resources are available on our website, www.btog.org. Do reach out if there's anything that you need. In terms of housekeeping, you should have already known the drill by now. We've been doing this for a while. You can submit your questions by typing them into the control panel. Please do that. It'd be great to hear from you and submit your questions for the speakers. We'll hopefully have five minutes after each presentation to take your questions. Uh, we will um, uh, send uh, you your certificate of attendance after your feedback has been received and the Royal College are shortly to confirm CPD points uh, for this. And as ever, this will be available on podcast to download uh, and CPD will be appropriate for four weeks after the event date until the 6th of December 2023, if you did want to claim them. So without uh, further ado, we're going to dive, deep dive into this data set. We have got a lot of topics to discuss, and we've divided them into three main areas. Tom's going to first kick off about discussing non-oncogene-addicted metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, and also small cell lung cancer as well. Followed by uh, that, Riaz is going to be diving into the complex world of oncogene-addicted metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. And then finally, Yvonne is going to be updating us on the confusing world of radical intent lung cancer. And hopefully by the end of this, we'll be very excited with our new data and have new paradigms in our mind for how we're going to take matters forward. We'll aim to close by 10 past uh, seven. So without further ado, I'll hand over to our first speaker, Tom Newsom-Davis, who's going to talk to us everything about non-mutation-driven advanced non-small cell lung cancer and a little bit about small cell lung Tom, over to you. Thank you, Sanjay. Uh, thank you for asking me to do this. As you know, it's uh, nothing gives me greater pleasure than to try to screen grab lots of talks on my return from ESMO. Um, here are my disclosures. So I'm going to tell you four basic things, guys. I'm going to tell you about antibody drug conjugates, that's ADCs, and we're going to focus on the Tropion study. That's a big study, hence I've underlined it, what I'm, I'm going to focus on. We're going to touch on small cell, three studies of which Delphi is the most interesting. A bit on overcoming checkpoint resistance, which by which I mean, what do we do when people have progressed on chemo and immunotherapy? And then finally, would you believe it, I'm actually going to talk about thymic carcinoma. So, uh, here we go with the first one, which is antibody drug conjugates. Um, first of all, I do have to apologize slightly for the slides. ESMO don't allow you to download them until tomorrow, which is really annoying. So these are screen grabs and aren't up to the usual high standards I would like. But that notwithstanding, we're going to think about antibody drug conjugates. And this was one of the um, presidential sessions. They were very, very impressive, these presidential sessions. It was amazing, actually. There were about three of them in total. 
and two of the three were completely dominated by lung data. So it was fabulous to be part of. Um, and this was uh, on the uh, first of the presidential sessions. I've wittily titled this A New Hope, or is it in fact Dossi Taxel Strike Back for those who are into Star Wars? Um, this is an antibody drug conjugate called Datapotamab deroxdecan. It is an antibody drug conjugate against PROP2. And that's been a very exciting target with evidence that it's overexpressed in cancer cells and comparatively uniquely expressed in cancer cells. And I think this is the kind of study we would expect people to do when they're bringing in a new drug. We are comparing it to patients who've had chemotherapy and immunotherapy, either together or separately. And we're comparing it to docetaxel, not docetaxel and intednib. We're comparing it to docetaxel. And they're either going to get dossi or they're going to get dato DXT, which is how we abbreviate data bottom map. And the headline data is in the top left-hand corner. So please look at the top left-hand graph and you can see the progression-free survival. And you can see that the dato arm in purple is better than the dossi arm in blue with a hazard ratio of about 0.75, which is kind of okay. Um, underneath, you'll see the overall response rate in that graph. You'll see the overall response rate for dato is 25% and the docetaxel arm is around 12%, so a doubling of response rate. So that's perhaps not the most mind-blowing data, but look bottom left in the forest plot, and you're going to see there's two groups which respond differently to this treatment. Um, the second grey bar from the bottom, there's an outlier all the way to the right there, and those are squamous patients. So squamous patients do not benefit from this drug, whereas the non-squamous patients do. Underneath that, you'll see that patients with genomic alterations, because patients with uh, mutation-driven lung cancer were allowed into the study, those benefited more than patients without. The right-hand graph is now dividing it by squamous and non-squamous. And you can see, looking on the right-hand graph of, those, of that box, the squamous patients are doing worse. They're doing worse on the dato than they are on the doxytaxel. The purple line is beneath the blue line. Conversely, patients with non-squamous are doing better hazard ratio 0.63, and that includes patients with and without actionable mutations. So there's clearly a benefit there. You'll see at the bottom, they then weeded out those without the uh, mutation. So these are wild type non-squamous patients. Hazard ratio is not quite as good, but it's still 0.71, which is, uh, I think, significant. What do we know about safety of this drug? Well, it is a drug on the face of it with a more favorable safety profile than docetaxel. So left-hand box, if you could look at that. Second line down, you'll see it says grade three or more side effects. And data would appear to have roughly half the number of grade three side effects in docetaxel. Going down that row, you'll see fewer dose reductions and fewer dose discontinuations. But it's not a drug without its issues. And the very bottom line you'll see there are grade three or worse treatment-related adverse events. And a little bit less than docetaxel, but they're still significant with data. So this is not an entirely benign drug when it comes to side effects. What are those side effects? Well, there's a few, but the ones we might focus on most are the uh, stomatitis and mucositis in the right-hand panel now, ocular side effects. And I'd particularly draw your attention to the bottom line of the right-hand box, where you can see there were seven or 2% of fatal interstitial lung disease related side effects. Now that percentage is low, 2% is not a huge number, but it's not insignificant. 
So what's my thought on Trippion? So there's a lot of excitement about this. Why did it make the presidential? Because it's the first randomized phase three of an ADC in lung cancer against the standard of care. So this is why I hit the big lights. And the good things, my green ticks are, look, something is better than docetaxel. Um, it doubles overall response rate. I mean, that, that's got to be a good thing, right? There is clearly activity in non-squamous patients with a progression-free survival hazard ratio of 0.63, and that activity, especially in the EGFR mutation patients. I suspect Riaz might tell us a bit of that in a minute or two. But also, I think the PFS is disappointing. It doesn't work in squamous patients. We don't yet have overall survival benefits, so we look forward to seeing that. And these are not drugs without side effects. A 2% grade 5 ILD rate is not to be ignored. I think we need to choose our patients better. We still don't know about TROP2 as a biomarker. This was not biomarker selected. And I think we need to understand better who we're treating. People coming out of chemo and immuno are a very heterogeneous group. They may have progressed rapidly through treatment. They may have progressed on chemo or not on chemo. They may have just progressed on the immuno. I think until we understand better who we're treating and we can try to work out maybe what their disease is like, we may not make too much progress with these drugs. We need to be a bit more selective. So interesting, but more work to be done. Yes, I'm going to talk about small cell lung cancer. Normally gets ignored in meetings, but there is interesting data in small cell lung cancer. And this is a really, really uh, a needful group in terms of new treatments. I'm going to talk about a drug which is called tarlatamab. And this is a bispecific T-cell engager or a bite. And what that basically means is you've got one bit of this molecule attracting T cells by binding to CD3, and that's the blue cell at the top. And you've got one part of this molecule binding to DLL3, which has been recognized for a while to be a very useful ligand on small cell lung cancer. You may remember there have been DLL3 targeted drugs in the past and agents which have not been successful, but we have not given up. And this is a different approach using a bispecific T cell engager. So this is a phase two study, not a phase three study. And in this phase two study, which is open label, they took patients who've had um, at least chemoimmunotherapy and uh, also at least platinum-based chemotherapy. They were working out their doses and they were looking at 10 milligrams and 100 milligrams and decided 10 milligrams was a better approach. And we've got a dose evaluation of 80 odd patients, a dose expansion of 12 patients, and then another 30 patients where they looked at giving the drug um, with reduced inpatient monitoring. And that inpatient monitoring is going to give you guys a clue about one of the issues with this, which is toxicity. Looking at the box at the bottom, you can see this is a really heavily pre-treated population. 30 to 40% were at least on third-line therapy. Most of those patients had had immunotherapy, but not all. Um, so this is, I think, a very select patient group. How many patients of yours, third line, are well enough with small cell to be getting into clinical trials? What's the headline data? The headline data, and I'd like to now really focus on the 10 milligram from here on. So that's the middle column here. Overall response rate of 40%, which I think is pretty good. I think that's pretty respectable. In fact, I think that's more than respectable. I think that's very encouraging. It wouldn't be dissimilar to perhaps what we might imagine in Platinum Rechallenge. Disease control rate of 70%. This is a heavily pre-treated patients. I think this is encouraging. You can see the progression-free survival. That, I think, is probably a little bit disappointing. But I think what's interesting is those overall survival uh, um, numbers that you can see on the right-hand graph with a median of around 14 months. So a bit of a dissociation, perhaps, between the PFS 
and the OS. But this, to me, is an active agent. And we haven't seen one of those in small cell for quite a while. But not without its problems. And those problems really are to do with something called cytokine release syndrome. This is on the right-hand red box on the graph here. And you can see running your eyes down the 10 milligram, which is the second and fourth columns, that around 50% of patients are getting grade one or two CRS, cytokine release syndrome, um, and a small number, uh, not insignificant, but a small number are getting grade three or worse. So we might say, well, that's okay, Tom, because grade one, grade two doesn't sound too bad, but actually grade two revolve, involves hospitalization. So look at the top graph here. This is the patients on 10 milligrams and the green lines are the percentage of patients having CRS and the first little dashed box is first cycle, and then second, sorry, first administration, second administration, third administration, and so on. So a bit like amivantamab for those of you who have used it, you're getting it really with the first and perhaps second treatment, and then it dies away. But it's not insignificant, actually. Um, there are There is a need for IL-6 blocking drugs, as you can see on the bottom right-hand side there, a bit of oxygen being used in almost 10% of patients. So I don't think it means you can't use it but I do worry a little bit about the impact on small cell patients and how we're going to give it. So my thoughts on this is, look, something works in small cell. This is massively exciting. Let's get excited. Um, there's a durable response. It's novel bite technology. Um, DLL3 is an attractive target, but it's a very select patient population. And the CRS toxicity is going to be challenging. This was a no control arm study as well, which is going to be a little bit of a problem in terms of us knowing exactly how well it's working. But we look forward to seeing more data. Tropix 3, continuing our small cell rundown, is another TROP2 antibody. Uh, this is a TROP2 antibody in people second line small cell lung cancer. All I'm going to say about this is, look, there's a response rate of about 40%. So keep an eye out for this. I wonder whether TROP2 antibody dependent uh, antibody drug conjugates are going to have a role in small cell. Keep an eye out for a sacituzumab in the Tropix 3. Other heads up is treasure study looking at thoracic radiotherapy in extensive stage, small cell lung cancer in patients who've had first line chemoimmunotherapy and they're randomized to maintenance of TISO or maintenance of TISO and thoracic radiation. This study shut early because of high grade three, four and indeed fatal grade five side effects. There's an appalling table on that bottom left hand side with terrible percentages, which really confuses people. But look at the second column which tells you that six patients had grade five toxicities compared to the third column where only one patient did. There's also a significant grade three to four toxicity rate. So this study was shut early, as you might imagine. So I think this says to us we need to be cautious when we're thinking about radiation therapy in this context. Um, and uh, this was a study that found it could be harmful, certainly, to patients, although not all the deaths were clearly related to pneumonitis. So a, a warning there. I'm going to move on to overcoming immunotherapy resistance. And these are patients who have had first line chemo and or immunotherapy. And this is, again, a bit like the first study. This is docetaxel, the old enemy, uh, against a combination of nivolumab, which you will know as a PD-1 inhibitor, and citrovatinib, which is a, a multi-tyrosine multi kinase inhibitor targeting VEGF, angiogenic kind of things and a variety of TAM, TAM targets as well, a dirty TKI to try to regain control. And this is a negative study, as you can see from overall survival at the bottom. There's really no signal there. And this is really adding to a number of studies now, Contact01 being among others, where we're struggling to work out better drugs than docetaxel in this relapse setting, which I guess adds some strength to the data of tropion that I showed at the beginning. 
We have other approaches. So this is a uh, bispecific monoclonal antibody targeting PD-1 and TIM-3, which is a, a, a co-stimulatory molecule, molecule, trying to, again, overcome resistance in the post-chemo immunotherapy patient population. This is a phase one study with lots of cohorts of different uh, doses, as you can see across the top. Um, and the long and short of it is, doesn't seem to be any significant toxicities, which is encouraging because similar molecules made by other companies and other approaches were limited by toxicity. This isn't toxic, but I think so far the the efficacy is uh, modest, to say the most. So we look forward to seeing more data on the higher doses and maybe bispecifics targeting something like TIM3 might be something to keep an eye out for. Finally, we've got FD-Lagamod alpha, which is a soluble LAG3, also a, a co-stimulatory molecule, uh, and MHC-CAS2 agonist. Um, we've seen this been washing around for a year or two now. We've had an update on data, I think, showing some really quite encouraging results. And this time, according to pdl one expression, so you can see on the graph there that the patients who benefit the most are pdl one high, are going all the way down to patients who are pdl one negative. But I think with the median overall survival of over, uh, th uh, uh, well, not reached actually, but over 35 uh, months in the pdl one positive group, I think this drug has activity and I look forward to seeing some more as it develops its portfolio. The last study I'm gonna tell you about is the relevant study. This is thymic carcinoma something we don't see often, but a poorly served patient group with very few treatment options beyond standard chemo. This is either metastatic thymic carcinoma or B3, which is obviously the aggressive end of thymomas. And this is a single arm phase two study of carbotaxol, which I'm guessing is probably what most of us give, with ramaciramab, which is a monoclonal targeting the VEGF pathway, not currently available in the UK, reimbursed. Um, a really impressive response rate. Look at that 80% response rate in that table, which is definitely above what we would expect to see with chemo and a very respectable duration of response of almost 16 months, which I think, again, is more than we would expect to see um, and a pretty waterfall plot to back up that response data. So that looks all exciting. Um, I think there's some really good things about this. These are mainly metastatic patients. Um, so this is a very difficult to treat group. That response rate is really pretty good compared to, I don't know, 20, 25% for chemo alone from historical data. Durable responses. Normally we see less than nine months with chemo and this is almost 16 months. And there is a randomized study underway, which I'd love to see the results of. But it is a phase two single arm study. So we don't really know the comparative benefits. The overall response rate, actually 80% was according to in investigator. When it was reviewed centrally, it was a little bit lower. And the numbers were small, the study was stopped early, and that was partly due to slow accrual. These are hard studies to recruit to. These are not very common cancers. And so that does weaken the data a bit. And the elephant in the room is that ramaciramab is not available in the NHS. So I'm afraid not something that we're gonna have access to in the immediate future. So my conclusions are tropion lung one, the ADC, uh, datoplotumab. It's a first step, it's an important step. I think it's a bit underwhelming. Let's choose our patients better, let's stratify better. Delphi in small cell, look, it's challenging, but it's active, don't have many active drugs. I like the Tropics data, it's early data, but we've got some activity of an ADC, so that's good. Overcoming resistance, as we saw in, in the other studies, um, it's hard, it's difficult to find something to beat docetaxel, and this is gonna be a challenging area. We need to think more intelligently, I think, about who we select and how we test these drugs. We can't just keep throwing them at docetaxel and seeing them not working.
And finally, chemo ramucirumab. I think it's an option for thymic carcinoma, and it would be lovely if that was available in the UK. So I will end it there, and I'm pleased to say I'm a couple of minutes under time. Thank you very much. Awesome, Tom. Thank you very much for that. So, folks, keep your questions coming in if you have any. Uh, Tom, so Tropian Lung I1, that's the one that we've all been waiting for. It's the first randomised ADC data set in lung cancer, full stop, right? So this is, yep. you know, setting the scene for where we're going with ADCs in advanced non-sponsored lung cancer. Overwhelmed or underwhelmed? Modest PFS benefit? Nothing for OS at the moment. What do you think? Yeah, I'm I'm a bit underwhelmed. I'll be honest with you. I thought it would be hitting the big the big time. Um, we saw some very impressive data in presidentials and other studies. This, which Riaz will tell us about, this was not one of them. Um, I think that we've learned this does not work in squames, which is a great shame because they really need a new treatment. We're desperately missing that. Uh, I'm not sure we're doing this in an intelligent way. I'm not sure we're selecting the right patients. It's an active drug, but in a select group, and we don't know who that select group is yet. And the wild type data, once you exclude the actionable genomic alterations, you know, the efficacy is relatively yep. modest, right? So, yeah, yep. um, as a ratio 0.71, which is getting a bit to the old days of, well, it kind of, yeah, it's statistically better, but is it clinically meaningfully better? So, I don't think these are a magic bullet which will kill everything and not give side effects. I think we have to work out better, but we know nothing so far, still, unless you do, about TROP2 as an assay choosing it does it work does it not work so i think we really need that more data and finally uh delphi 301 i'm hugely excited about this i think this is you know a major breakthrough for small cell lung cancer if it rolls out in phase three yeah. trials which you know need to be done and uh results of which are awaited but very very impressive early data how's this going to work in the uk right so if you, <laughs> yeah. you say they've got a um main patient program tomorrow right are we going to get this used in every every hospital i can't see that right these patients need hospitalization yep. for treatment talk, talk me through it yeah i'm i'm equally worried as you say that there's going to be a compassionate access program we believe um these patients i think have to be admitted um my chemotherapy units are going to be terrified as indeed will many people be with a cytokine release syndrome now it's manageable there'll be a clear protocol but it will have to be probably an inpatient management. And I do worry that will discriminate against patients in settings where that's not possible. I don't think it should detract, detract us. We have managed amivantamab side effects, but it's going to be a challenge and we need to work together to get protocols established and, and uh, disseminated through the UK. But I don't think you just stop us using a drug that is active, but we must choose the right patients for it. I think that's absolutely right. You've got to remember, right, our myeloma colleagues have been using bites for years, right? This is just on yeah. to them. When they look at this, they think, what are you, what are you worried about? Like, yeah. It's just nothing, right? Yeah. So yeah. just got to grab the nettle and get on with it, is my, my views. But we've got to work with the constraints that we have. Tom, thank you very much. I'm going to thank allow you. you to leave. And uh, we're going to move on to our next speaker this evening, who is Riyaz Shah. Uh, Riaz, welcome to the uh, meeting, and you can uh, unmask yourself, and you're going to tell us all about oncogene-addicted uh, metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, of which there was quite a lot of data. Riaz. Right, hello, everyone. Um, I've got a lot to go through, uh, just overwhelming amounts, so I'm just really going to whiz through it. Uh, forgive me for uh, talking very quickly. Right, disclosure's done. There are nine NHS England approved actionable mutations. There they are. And interestingly, six of them have first line reimbursement. So remember that. 
And how are we detecting these? Well, most of us are using our genomic hubs that are using a DNA multi-gene panel, an RNA fusion panel. But you know, there are centers that are using um, quick assays, uh, PCR-based. These don't detect all fusions or uh, mutations. Uh, and uh, just another sort of um, uh, advertisement for the DNA transformation project. I won't go into it now. If you don't know what it is, contact your GMSA. It's very important. It's expanding and it will give your patients access to liquid biopsy. Right, I'm going straight into EGFR. I'm gonna talk about several mutations straight into EGFR, and I want to focus on uncommon EGFR mutations. So most of our patients have common mutations, deletions in exon 19 or L858R, 12% have rarer mutations, and of these, the commonest is an exon 20 insertion. As you can see from the chart on the right, there are other point mutations that occur, G719X, L861X, et cetera, et cetera. There are compound mutations. But exon 20 insertions, we've long known about them. They tend to be TKI resistant. Um, it's the commonest uncommon mutation, missed by many PCR-based platforms, needs NGS, resistant to conventional TKI. We have approvals for amivantamab and mobocertinib in the subsequent line setting. Uh, the first line, um, the randomized study of MOBO has failed, exclaimed two, and we've in the last few weeks heard that Takeda are voluntarily withdrawing that drug from the market. I want to introduce this drug, uh, this trial called Papillon. This is using the bispecific EGFR met antibody amivantamab, already approved in exon 20 insertions, and this is a randomized study taking patients with documented exon 20 insertions who are treatment naive, so first line therapy straight into either chemotherapy, which is the standard of care, or amivantamab plus chemotherapy. And this is the money shot. Here we have a clear PFS slide showing that ami chemo is superior to chemo. Median um, PFS 6.7 up to 11.4 months. The response rate is higher. The time to response is shorter. The duration of response is longer. And at every time point, you will see that the landmark favors the combo. Um, PFS2, which is looking at the time to progression of the subsequent line therapy, is often used as a better surrogate, of, uh, as an early surrogate of what might happen to OS, uh, minimizing the influence of subsequent therapies. It's still positive there. And interim over, overall survival, very early data, but tantalizingly pointing towards a possible survival advantage, not quite statistically significant yet, but very early data. So here we have a clear study, AMI chemo beats chemo in the first line setting of this disease. What about toxicity? Well, you can see on the right-hand side, we get EGFR-related toxicities, Mab inhibits MET, so you get MET in, uh, toxicities, hypoalbuminemia, peripheral edemia, and you also see a range of myelosuppressive uh, toxicities, liver dysfunction, et cetera, et cetera. And if you look on the left-hand side, you will see that the rates of these toxicities are significant. So 75% of patients on amichemo getting a grade three toxicity, very high rates of drug interruption, drug reduction, and discontinuation. So there is a toxicity burden so what does this mean? Well, pending reimbursement and licensing, this means that exon 20 insertions are now first line actionable. If you currently send all your molecular to your GLH, you don't need to do anything because that will should pick them all up. That's great. If you are doing a PCR screen, then you'll probably miss these patients and you need to ensure that any screen negatives get sent for NGS and that you have the result ready by the first oncology appointment if this gets reimbursed. That's that.
Right, close that book. Let's talk about the other uncommon mutations. Here's a randomized trial of a fatinib versus chemotherapy. So there's, uh, there is data for a fatinib, data for a range of TKIs and uncommon non-exon 20 insertion uh, cancers. The Achilles trial randomized patients to a fatinib or chemotherapy with a sensitizing uh, uncommon mutation. 30% of these patients have brain mets. And here's the distribution on the left of the mutations they had. And you can clearly see on the right, there's a PFS advantage. The median from 5.7 to 10.6 months for the addition or for a fatinib versus chemotherapy. So that's really interesting. This is the first randomized trial done prospectively in uncommon mutations. The mutations in this subgroup you might predict to be more sensitive to a fatinib. There's emerging data for lots of TKIs, next generation TKIs in the management of this disease. Um, uh, I've lost my Zoom. Um, and I, I tend to use osimertinib for uh, uh, PAC mutations. Um, now, what about normal EGFR? So we've talked about the uncommon and exon 20, but there's a lot of data at this meeting on um, common mutations. So currently, osimertinib is our standard of care. I want you to focus on those curves at the bottom. The median PFS for first-line osiflora trial, 18.9 months. Median overall survival, 38.6 months. Remember 18.9 months, because I'm going to refer to that uh, further down the line. So post-osimertinib, um, we've talked about amivantamab in exon 20 insertions, but it also has activity in non-exon 20 insertion. So I'm going to look at a couple of trials uh, looking at amivantamab. So Mariposa 2 is looking at common mutation patients who've progressed on or after osimertinib as their most recent line of therapy. And they were randomized, three arms. Here you can see the control arm is the middle one, chemotherapy, with two investigational arms, amichemo or amilazertinib chemo. Lazertinib is another third generation TKI. The thinking being that uh, amivantanamab may not get into the brain because it's an antibody, therefore we might need to use a TKI. Now, the results of this are quite interesting. Really important about both Mariposa studies is serial brain MRIs were mandated through the study. Now, 45 roughly percent of patients in all arms had brain mets. Most of the patients had had first line OSI preponderance of deletion 19 over L858R, which is interesting. And this is the money shot slide. It shows that the two investigational arms, AMI laser chemo and AMI chemo, are performing similar to each other, but superior to um, chemo alone. And you can see the hazard ratios there. You can see on the right-hand side, um, comparing chemo to AMI chemo, the benefit is seen across all subgroups including patients with brain metastases. So very significant data coming out here. The response rate was better in both investigational arms and intracranial progression-free survival was better in both investigational arms. Toxicity is significant. So there's significantly more grade three toxicity in both investigational arms, more dose interruptions, reductions, discontinuations, et cetera. Um, as you would expect, there are EGFR toxicities, MET toxicities in both AMI subgroups. Uh, there is excess myelosuppressive toxicity in the combos of chemo with AMI plus uh, uh, AMI alone or AMI lazertinib. And venous thromboembolism, you will see that AMI lazertinib chemo has a 22% chance of getting a venous thromboembolic, thromboembolic event. So there is a toxicity profile 
associated with this. So on the face of it, this is showing AMI chemo is similar to AMI laser chemo. Both are significantly better for chemotherapy. So post-OSI chemos are standard of care. Here we've got something that is better than chemotherapy. I'm not sure that adding lizertinib is adding anything else, but so this is a potential option after osimertinib failure. But amivantanamab was also um, um, tested in the first line Mariposa study. So Mariposa 2, the clue is in the name, 2 for second line. Mariposa is the first line set it, uh, study, just straight head to head, amilazertinib versus osimertinib frontline. So these are patients with common mutations, randomized to osimertinib, standard arm, or lazertinib, an investigational arm, or the combination of amivantamab and lazertinib, another investigational arm. Again, serial MR mandated, 40% with brain mets. Um, and what you see here is very interesting. You see that amilazertinib seems to be better than both OSI and lazertinib. OSI and lazertinib are very similar drugs, third generation TKIs. You wouldn't think that they would behave any differently, but the hazard ratio for PFS is 0.7. Um, and if you, this trial mandates CNS imaging, if you remove the patients whose first progression point was the brain, so you're basically trying to model what would have happened with this study had brain imaging not been mandated, you see the median survival is 18.5 months for osimertinib, exactly, almost exactly what Flora showed. So what we're seeing in the main study overall is osimertinib's delivering PFS of 16.6 months. So you see the benefit of Mariposa, amilazertinib is independent of brain metastases. And again, amivantamab lazertinib is associated with more toxicity. The tornado plot clearly shows that. And VTEs is a big thing. So 36% of the patients having amilazertinib suffered some sort of venous thrombolic event, and they now recommend oral or low molecular weight heparin for four months on the initiation of this. So this is a well-conducted registrational trial. It will get licensed. It will get probably reimbursed in the UK. Will we use it first line? Are we willing to accept this level of toxicity for our patients? That remains unanswered. At World Lung, a few weeks before this meeting, the Flora 2 study reported its results. This is osimertinib versus Ossi plus chemo. And we saw that there was a PFS benefit, substantial one, to having OSI plus chemo. Well, what was presented at ESMO was some brain data. And look at the curves on the right-hand side. Look at the blue curves. And you can see patients treated with osimertinib with and without brain metastases have a significant difference in their outcomes. But you will see patients treated with OSI chemotherapy almost identical. It's superior. And the negative benefit of that you see with brain met seems to be completely negated by giving chemo with osimertinib. Quite a remarkable result. We don't need to go into the fine detail of this, but there's a lot of granularity of the data given, giving reassurance that osimertinib plus chemo is highly, highly active in the brain. And look at the second uh, row in this table, the complete response rate to osi chemo is over 50%, uh, which is staggering. It's also neuroprotective, preventing the presence of brain metastases. So the hazard ratio for OSI chemo in measurable uh, or unmeasurable brain mets is 0.58, measurable only 0.4, 
significant complete response rate benefit, duration of response not reached. So fantastic. Another well-conducted first-line trial. Will this get licensed? Yes. Will it get reimbursed? Yes. What will we do? We've been using OSTE very happily, but now we're seeing data that patients may be better off having OSI chemo or amylazertinib. And pharma will be very interesting to know what you think you're, you're going to be doing in your clinic. There are a few other EGFR studies to mildly gloss over. Uh, so Tropion and Herthina, two antibody drug conjugates showing activity. Um, Atlas is a bit small print stuff, really. It's chemo uh, IO actually showing a benefit for chemo IO. It's an Asian study, contrary to a lot of data saying IO doesn't work in this disease. And a little bit of data on EGFR HER3 bispecific called BLB01D1. That's enough for EGFR. Let's move on to RET fusion. So currently standard of care is selpicatinib based on Liberetto 001. Liberetto 431 is an open label phase three study. These are first line patients, selpicatinib or chemotherapy. Uh, the chemo could be chemo or chemo IO. And what you see is there's a vast benefit for selpicatinib first line over chemotherapy, regardless of whether they have immunotherapy or no immunotherapy, the response rate's higher, the intracranial response rate higher, it's neuroprotective and their quality of life benefits as well. So what does this mean? For me, this is practice affirming because selpicatinib is my first line treatment of choice for these patients, but it's now really good to have an affirming randomized first line study to confirm my practices within is evidence-based. So upfront testing is important. Optimizing your detection of fusions is important. Think about your fixation time, minimize taste failures, um, et cetera, et cetera. Let's close that mutation. Let's go to another disease, KRAS mutation positive lung cancer. We currently have Sotorazib approved in G12C, but there's a lot of worry about this drug based on an analysis of the Codebreak 200 trial. And I would, implore you to go and watch the ODAC assessment of this trial and their criticisms of this trial, which are two, um, I can't go into it now, but at ESMO, we heard data on the CRYSTAL-7 study on a subgroup of patients. Adagrazib is the drug here. This is another G12C off inhibitor. It's got a very long half-life, but is dosed twice daily, binds slightly different epitope to, um, uh, to Sotorazib. And Sotorazib's main concern is a lot of these patients have come off immunotherapy, and there's a high rate of liver dysfunction, liver problems uh, when you give SOTO in someone who's recently had Pembro. So they did a first line study of adagrazib plus Pembrolizumab in PDL1 known patients. Uh, it's not randomized, but the toxicities they found, they're looking at toxicities, showed significant numbers of AL patients suffering from ALT or AST increases. But interestingly, this was largely a paper toxicity. Most of these patients could be managed with steroids. Most of them were able to recommence the combination treatment and the rates of actual organic liver pathology were very low. Um, and it was very active, response rate of 63%, long disease control rate, medium time to response, the first scan, 1.4 months. Brilliant data, really interesting, phase three warranted. Lots of interest in new KRAS inhibitors. Revolution Medicine have got a pan-KRAS inhibitor. We saw a little bit of data on that, a little bit of data on a new G12D inhibitor, and some data on a com combining strategy of a SHIP2 inhibitor with a G12C inhibitor. So rapidly developing field in our normal practice, SOTO is our um, standard of care post first line at the moment. Consider trials for these patients. 
this really is a rapidly developing area. So I have got a few minutes. I just want to quickly cover a couple of things. I do want to talk about this. We don't test for this. This is very rare. NRG1 fusions. So NRG1 fusions are rare. They occur in like less than 1% of patients. NRG1 fusions interact with HER3. HER3 heterodimerizes with HER2. AKT signaling activated cancer progression. Xenocatuzumab is an anti-HER2, HER3 monoclonal antibody, a bispecific, and this is an open-label study, 79 patients with NRG1 fusions. Look at that, 37% response rate, beautiful waterfall plot. Everyone responds really quickly and a median duration of response of more than a year, 14.9 months. Extremely well tolerated. Isn't that amazing? So this all, we need to report these, you know, we don't currently report them. Should these be on our national test directory? Will there be a compassionate program? We don't know. Um, There was a little bit on another mutation that I think is we need to keep our eyes out for, HER2 exon 20 insertions. Here's a TKI in 20 patients with HER2 uh, mutations, Bay 7088 was tolerable and had a 60% response rate. Uh, and another strategy for her too is using antibody drug conjugates. And here we had some data, pool data from two studies called Destiny Lung 01 and 02, basically showing that trastuzumab droxetecan has actually quite high rates of intracranial disease response and control in patients with that disease. So TDXD already has accelerated FDA approval. Uh, we need to get our GLHs reporting this. And I think today, a patient diagnosed this year with a HER2 mutation is likely to live long enough that they would be able to access HER2-directed therapy during their lifetime if we knew about it. So finally, closing slide, landmark data, EGFR, KRAS, RET, NRG1, HER2. We really need to optimize our somatic mutation detection systems. We need to think critically about what's biopsied, how much tissue, the time to get to the lab, the fixative time, the platform that we use, the turnaround times, getting the result back to the right person at the right time. And we also need to integrate CTDNA into our pathways. And I'm done. Shout out. Brilliant. What a whirlwind tour, right? That was just amazing. There's so much going on in the world of um, genetic alterations. Uh, Thank you for talking us through that. So I think the, the, the main message I'm getting from you is We really need to make sure that our NHS funded platforms are delivering on what they're meant to be doing. And, you know, everybody's got skin in the game, right? So uh, we've got to identify our EGFR exon 20 insertions up front now because we haven't got any second line treatment options, right? So that's correct, isn't it? Takeda withdrawing mobocertinib, amivantanab is not being a nice appraise, so it's not available in the second line setting. If we're gonna treat these patients with targeted therapy, it's gonna be upfront. Your technology has to be able to identify exon 20 insertions. You've highlighted the beauty of first line salpicacinib as well, Riaz. So, uh, you know, are we doing this in the UK or is this impossible? And we just need to say, well, this is something else for the Americans, right? So, you know, what, what, where are we in the UK? Um, we're variable. I think we, we have uh, lots of different things happening across the country. Uh, I, it's not straightforward at all. This is actually a really complex area. I really hope that BTOG spends a lot of time focusing on this issue. We need to, this is about making a diagnosis. Lung cancer is not a diagnosis. It's not a disease. Non-small cell lung cancer is not a diagnosis. We need the molecular subtype upfront in clinic. And even in the patients with non-first line driven uh, targets, 
actually knowledge of that upfront changes what you do. You know, you're giving a first line toxic chemoimmunotherapy treatment. Do you bail out? Do you push a patient through? Do you say they're pseudo progression? You really need to know this data upfront. It's gold dust. So I think it's absolutely critical. It's irrespective of what line the drug is reimbursed in. Knowledge is power and we need to know upfront. So now fusion detection is really critical, right? So, you know, RNA testing is really critical. We've got MET inhibitors available frontline, or RET inhibitors available frontline. I think, you know, people don't remember that we're in a very luxurious position compared to many parts of Europe. I mean, France doesn't even have first-line subagathinib access. Most of Europe don't have first-line subagathinib access. We're in a very privileged position. Is that right, Riaz? Totally agree with you, Sanjay. That's so true. You know, even how many BRAFs get first-line DABTRAM? in this you get i bet you it's only a fraction okay so uh, let's focus in on egfr mutant uh, lung cancer patients these patients uh you know you've had them treated with first line so, um, osimertinib they're starting to progress let's let's envisage that everything is approved right what are we going to do are we going to are we going to be using Ossie chemo? Are we going to be using uh, AMI chemo? Are we going to be using IMPAL 150? Well, you've lost over it, but actually, I thought the Korean data on IMPAL 150 was actually really very impressive, actually. Huge PFS benefit, massive overall survival. So, probably the OS, lack of OS benefit, was driven by the post progression balance of therapeutics, et cetera. We've got three potential choices for our patients, right? So, what are we going to do? We're actually, you're going to give chemo. OSI up front, which, you know, takes out the chemo from the OSI later. Let's get to that later. If you've got a patient progressing on OSI Mertinib, how are we going to choose? Well, I think you're asking me the question. Yeah. I think this is a really, this is the question of our day. Um, where is this going to evolve? I really, I am concerned about the toxicity profile of amilazertinib. I am concerned about the toxicity profile of amichemo, um, but very, very few doctors in this country have prescribed that drug. And what you see on paper and what you see when you actually treat patients and you get used to dealing with the toxicities are two totally different things. And the other thing I would say is this, uh, ami is very likely to become a subcutaneous preparation with, with a lot of evidence to suggest the toxicity profile is, is different. Um, so I think um, I, 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 there's no answer, you know, we, we've got to stick with randomized data. So we now, OSI has been our standard. We now have several trials suggesting that there are other treatments that are superior to that standard, but those have not been compared against each other. So uh, we're going to have a situation where we have potentially multiple standards of care. And uh, this is going to, you know, um, going to be quite confusing, I think, over the next few years, right, until things settle down, because what you do frontline, I think, will influence what we, you do second line, right, because there will be people who will absolutely stick with osimertinib monotherapy, and there'll be others who will want to give amylaser, and there'll be others that will want to be giving uh, chemo Aussie frontline. So what are we going to do in the frontline setting? I mean, do we do we just you know stick with Aussie mono? Do we go up front? And I tell I tell you what, forty percent of our patients have brain mets, and the Flora two brain data that presented at Esmo really did strike me. I mean, I I really engaged and connected with that. And I thought if I had a patient with brain meds, known brain meds at baseline, I kind of think I would probably go chemo-ossie uh, for now. Um, 
and I would have an academic discussion about the options in a non-brain met person. But that brain met data is quite astonishing, you know, 60% yeah. CR rate. I totally agree. And I would counter with the fact that with Mariposa 1, you know, the AMI laser brain data also, I would suggest, yeah. pretty spectacular. Right? I agree. And you're not using up a line of treatment, right? So this is, these are the discussions right, that, that I think we're going to have. Let's focus in on KRAS, right? We've got Sataracib, we've got Adagrasib. You've seen the tweets over the last few days. Adagrasib has now got a uh, license by the MHRA. I hope it gets proposed moving forward for uh, reimbursement. Um, where are we going in this space, right? So we've got RAS on, RAS multi. We've got combinations uh, coming through. Are we genotyping these patients? Are we getting them adequate treatment? Are we going to be using frontline chemo? Plus TK, uh, well, not TKI, but plus RAS inhibitor. Uh, what, what's your views on this, Rose? Um, I think the KRAS space is really rapidly. I mean, this is where we're as close to phase one data influencing what we do in clinic. Um, so there is no answer to this. We there's we just log on to Blue Tech and see what our options are for our patients. That's what's going to dictate what we do in clinic. But actually, in the space of academia. Um, there are a whole bunch of clinical trials, opening, closing. When I have a KRAS patient that's not G12C, I'm straight onto my local phase one unit saying, what have you got? What trials have you got? How have you got slots available? Uh, everyone says they've got, a pay, they've, got, they've got a trial open, but you know, is there a slot open for my patient next week? Uh, usually the answer is no. So um, a lot of this needs, um, I mean, I would want the, there are loads of KRAS inhibitors, loads of trials. We need to put patients in. And once we get the readouts from this trial, these trials, then we'll start knowing about sequencing, combinations. So all those questions are the questions for the future. Totally agree. So very exciting space. Let's do the trials. Let's go do it uh, all in. And finally, NRG1 fusions. Totally agree. Really need to know these. These are patients with bronchialveolar carcinomas that are KRAS wild type, right? So we know that we usually see KRAS mutations. We've seen some data with uh, afatinib, but this is enocotuzumab data, really, really very impressive. Very, very uh, important, I think, that even if it's not on the test directory, right, we try and find out whether these patients uh, have NLG1 fusions uh, at all. I, I presume you agree with that strategy. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think the uh, test directory is very predicated on treatments that have uh, a reimbursable drug option, which is a pity, because I do think, uh, uh, and while that's important, I do think that doesn't recognize the rapid rate of development that we have in thoracic oncology. I would like to, of course, I would like to know if my patient has an NRG1 fusion. Uh, and afatinib has some data in that drug, in that space, even if I can't give zinacutuzumab. But the zinacutuzumab data was stellar. I mean, a bispecific antibody that looked incredibly tolerable and incredibly effective with a median duration of response of 14.9 months. I mean, looks like a magic treatment to me. Impressive indeed. And with that, I'd like to thank you for your diligence and for going through that huge amount of data uh, so eloquently. Riaz, thank you very much. And we'll move on to our final speaker uh, of the day, uh, Yvonne Summers. And Yvonne, you're going to talk us through the uh, you know, rapidly evolving world of radical, radically treated non-small cell lung cancer. So Yvonne, over to you. 
Thanks, Sanjay. And I, and I feel exhausted after that tour de force by Riaz. That was just completely fantastic. But I think it completely exemplified what an amazing ESMO it was. It was just fantastic. It was nonstop and there was something amazing every day with multiple uh, presentations in the presidential symposiums. So for the next, I'm going to have to talk quite quickly because we're a bit short on time. So I'm going to look at radical intent, um, non-small cell lung cancer. Those are my disclosures. And I'm going to split it down into those with oncogene-addicted non-small cell lung cancer and some of the studies mainly in the perioperative setting of chemotherapy and immunotherapy and then immunotherapy doublet. So the first study that I'm going to talk about is ALENA. So this is the randomized phase three study of electinib versus chemotherapy in early stage out-positive non-small cell lung cancer. So very similar to the ADORA study that you're all familiar with, but there are some key differences. So in this study, patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to either receive electinib or platinum doublet chemotherapy. So there was no chemotherapy in the patients receiving the electinib arm. And the electinib was, was received for two years of treatment or until toxicity, um, unlike, of course, in, in Adora when we had three years of treatment. The primary endpoint of the study was disease-free survival, with secondary endpoints um, CNS disease for survival, because of course CNS disease is so important in patients without positive disease. Overall survival, but the data is not mature enough for us to see the overall survival uh, yet and, and safety. So coming to the, the primary endpoint, disease-free survival, on the, there was hierarchical testing. So initially they looked at patients with stage two and stage three disease. And you can see on that left-hand curve that those curves are very widely split with a hazard ratio of 0.24. So very convincing benefit in the stage two and stage three patients. And they then went on to test because that was positive in the whole intent to treat population of stage one B to three. And again, you can see that hazard ratio, very impressive, 0.24 um, favoring elect electinib over chemotherapy. And the follow-up on this study was about 28 months. So we've still got quite a bit of maturity to see develop and we will see the overall survival data coming through. But in terms of how does that benefit pan out by stage, you can see from these curves that are split down into stage one, stage two and stage three disease, all of the patients are getting substantial benefit with electinib versus chemotherapy favoring electinib with hazard ratios 0 0.21, 0 0.24, and 0.25. So really clear benefit for the, for the electinib compared to chemotherapy in this space. So what about brain metastasis? Of course, we've heard already how important CNS disease is in, in patients with onc uh, oncogen-driven cancer. And you can see from that top left-hand curve that for patients with um, patients were monitored for CNS disease recurrence, so they routinely had MR brain scans to follow up, and you can see that those curves are split really from a very early time point, again with a hazard ratio of 0.22. Although there aren't very many events in this series, clearly the, the, the advantages for electinib over chemotherapy. And when we look at sites of disease recurrence, you can see there are obviously much fewer recurrences in the electinib arm, local regional recurrence more common in electinib um, than with uh, chemotherapy and where you can see both local regional and distant recurrence uh, being significant. So what about safety and uh, the sites of disease recurrence? Well, you can see in terms of safety, both electinib and chemotherapy had about 30% grade 3-4 um, adverse events. 
But I would point out that you can see 26 and 27% of patients with a dose interruption or a dose reduction. So there certainly is some toxicity on the electinib arm that has to be managed. And of course, these patients are on treatment for two years. So, so low-grade side effects become more of an issue uh, when patients are on treatment for a longer period of time. So we need to be mindful of managing those side effects. But actually, the discontinuation rates are quite reasonable at 5%. And when we look at the sites of disease recurrence, of course, um, many more sites of disease recurrence in chemotherapy in the chemotherapy arm compared to electinib, just because of the difference in the efficacy. But when we look at subsequent therapies, you can see that the vast majority of patients who had disease recurrence have had a subsequent therapy, about 90% in both arms. Uh, you might then say when you look at those in, in the chemotherapy arm that have had a TKI, it's only 76%. But if you look down at the radiotherapy and surgery um, uh, lines at the bottom, you can see that those other patients have had radiotherapy and surgery. So a lot of those patients probably had local regional recurrence, which is why they haven't yet had a TKI. So, so reasonable uh, post-progression uh, treatment rates there. So clearly, electinib is now, for me, the standard of care for patients with ALK-positive, completely resected stage 1 to 3 non-small cell lung cancer. But there are some things for us to think about. There was no chemotherapy in the experimental arm, and I am slightly uncomfortable about not treating patients with stage three and stage two disease with chemotherapy. So although this um, demonstrates the benefit of electinib over chemotherapy, I'm still not completely convinced that chemotherapy can be forgotten about in these, this patient group. There's the question of the duration of therapy. It's been chosen as two years. But of course, our patients with advanced disease have very significant progression-free survival times on treatment. And there's a question about whether, whether two years is enough or not. And as we touched on, the toxicity is something that needs to be proactively managed. So moving on from the oncogene-driven space in early stage disease to looking at uh, neoadjuvant and adjuvant and perioperative chemotherapy, so at ESMO, we had some big data looking in the perioperative setting from Keynote 671. This, this data we've seen before in terms of disease-free survival, but we saw at ESMO presented the overall survival data. So just to remind you, this was for patients with resectable stage 2 to stage 3 disease by version 8 of the TNM. And patients were randomized in this study to have four cycles of preoperative chemotherapy with placebo or pembrolizumab, then surgery, and then went on to receive 13 cycles of pembro or placebo, with the primary endpoint being event-free survival, overall survival, and secondary endpoints, uh, complete and major pathological response. And this is the money shot. So on the left-hand side, you can see uh, just over three years far up, those survival curves are significantly split. So you can see the hazard ratio of 0.72, and the, the, the curve seemed to split just after that one year time point and seemed to be continuing to split as time goes on, uh, with 64% of patients at three years being um, uh, alive on the uh, standard chemotherapy arm and 71% of patients on the chemo IO arm and, and subsequent adjuvant pembrolizumab. And the event-free survival that's been updated is very similar to the event-free survival that we've seen previously reported with that very significant hazard ratio of 0.59, similar to the other hazard ratios we've seen in other perioperative studies. 
And in terms of the subgroups, you can see that most of those subgroups, there's a significant benefit. I would just draw your eye to the smoking on the left-hand side, and you can see that the never smokers perhaps not gaining such benefit from chemo IO as those who had smoked in the past or are still, still current smokers. And in terms of PDL1, on the right-hand side, you can see a higher degree of benefit with those with high levels of PDL1 than those with lower levels of PDL1. In terms of subsequent treatments, for patients on the placebo arm, you can see half of those patients received a PD-1 or a PDL1 inhibitor on subsequent treatment compared to only 21% um, in the patients that received pembrolizumab. So, so not, not, not surprising that there's some differences there. But overall, nearly 77% of patients on the placebo arm having subsequent therapy, so good rates of subsequent treatment. So what about the response? Um, you can see on the left-hand side, we are seeing a, a pathological complete response of nearly 20%, so fairly consistent with what we've seen in other studies in this setting, with uh, only about a 4% pathological complete response in the chemotherapy arm, and the major pathological complete response, as you can see, up beyond 30% for patients receiving chemo IO. In terms of adverse events, it's important to note that there were no new safety signals um, in this study. But again, you can see that the rates of discontinuation are running about 5.8% for those that are um, related to the immunotherapy, but overall about 13.6% of patients discontinuing study treatment. So there is obviously still some toxicity associated with the immunotherapy that needs to be managed. But in summary, overall survival benefit being demonstrated in the perioperative setting with, with neoadjuvant and adjuvant pembrolizumab with a hazard ratio of 0.72. I guess one of the questions for us is how does this fit with our existing neoadjuvant and adjuvant approaches? And how is that going to fit into our clinical practice? So at present, we obviously have access to three cycles of neoadjuvant nevochemo as per Checkmate 816. And we have adjuvant atezolizumab in high PDL one It's going to be interesting to see how this is... Um, uh, viewed by our regulatory authorities, authorities in the UK are, of course, nice because there are some significant toxicities, not just in terms of the side effects associated with treatment and the way we deliver this treatment, but also some financial costs associated with this. So I think it's uncertain as to exactly how this is going to be um, changing our clinical practice in the UK at this point. So the second study that was presented in this area in the um, presidential symposia is a very similar study to the previous one, but essentially this time looking at nivolumab rather than pembrolizumab. And this study didn't include patients with EGFR or outmutations. Very similar schema that you can see there. And I'm just going to whip through quite quickly because I know we're running short on time. Um, so in terms of the, the, the follow-up on this study, it's the first presentation, so follow-up 25 months. We're not seeing overall survival yet, but you can see with the event-free survival on the left-hand side, hazard ratio of 0.58, so very similar to the hazard ratio that we've seen for events-free survival in all of the other perioperative studies. And again, you can see in that forest plot on the right-hand side, really benefit being consistent across most of the disease groups. And you can just see at the bottom that higher levels of benefit in those with higher PDL1 expression. And the complete response rates, again, very impressive at 25% for chemo IO versus about 4% for chemotherapy. So again, very consistent levels of um, uh, pathological complete response and very high levels of major pathological response. So moving from the perioperative 
um, neoadjuvant adjuvant uh, immunotherapy setting to Checkmate 816. So Checkmate 816, we're all familiar with. That's the data that we have that has demonstrated the benefit for chemotherapy, immunotherapy, three cycles neoadjuvantly prior to surgery with no adjuvant component. This was a report of the um, exploratory analysis of chemotherapy versus Nevo IPI from the study. And it was exploratory because of the environment changing uh, during the time that this study was running. So patients were randomized on this part that has been reported to either three cycles of neoadjuvant chemotherapy or three cycles of nivolumab and ipilimumab with no routine adjuvant therapy. And it's interesting to see that those event-free survival and overall survival curves are split. You can see that the confidence limits do cross over one, um, although the hazard ratios are 0.77 for event-free survival and 0.73 for overall survival. But I would draw attention to the crossing over of the event-free survival at the beginning of that curve. And remember, we've seen this in a lot of immunotherapy studies with patients having um, uh, that, that are not receiving chemotherapy, having some detriment, or at least some patients having some detriment at the beginning part of the curve. And I think in the neoadjuvant setting, it perhaps speaks to what you can see in this uh, uh, schema, which is where you can see that the rates of cancelled surgery in the patients receiving nevo-ipi were high. So about 26%. And of those, you can see 62% of them were down to disease progression. So although we've got good overall outcomes, there are certainly some detriment to patients. So some, some patients progressing in that initial phase, which relates to that crossing of the curves. So I guess I have some concerns about this, and I'm not entirely sure how this is going to um, uh, lead to changes in clinical practice, because certainly for me, that chemotherapy is a very important part of the neoadjuvant regimen. However, having said all of that, there were some very impressive um, pathological complete responses. So the same sort of rate of pathological complete response as we were seeing with chemo IO. Um, so perhaps there is some further ground for us to think about in this setting, perhaps for patients that are not suitable for platinum doublet chemotherapy for whatever reason. And I think the other thing that's going to import, be important is how we see this data mature, because of course, with nevoipi in some of the advanced settings, we've often seen quite a substantial tail to the curve. And I think it's going to be important to see how this data um, pans out. So I just want to spend a moment or two thinking about how we put all of our um, adjuvant, neoadjuvant and perioperative studies into context. And I think we often have to think about how other disease groups have developed in over time. In particular, if you just look at the bottom curve, the bottom graph here, this was looking at a randomized phase three study in melanoma using the same immunotherapy. So it was 18 cycles of pembrolizumab in patients who had resectable stage three and four melanoma. And they either got three cycles of adjuvant pembro followed by 15 cycles, uh, uh, sorry, three cycles of neoadjuvant pembro followed by 15 cycles of adjuvant or simply 18 cycles of adjuvant pembro. And you can see those survival curves are very distinctly split with the advantage to the neoadjuvant component. So I think this is really important for me and it makes me consider that the neoadjuvant part of treatment is probably going to be 
as important as anything else. And when we're thinking about how we decide on what treatments we give our patients in the future, for me, the neoadjuvant component is probably going to be the key part. I, I have um, mercilessly plagiarized this from Marina Garasino, who was talking about the issues that we have trying to make decisions now that we have four studies that have reported in the perioperative setting. And she'd done a meta-analysis of these studies looking at some very important questions. So we have four different perioperative um, studies that have reported this year. We've just heard about Checkmate 77T. We had a GIN previously reported with Davalimab. Keynote 671, we've seen that important overall survival data with, and Neotorch, which was looking at the Chinese Seripamab. So all very similar studies. So are there any differences between these regimens? The bottom line is no, they're all pretty much the same. The second thing is about what about stage two patients? A lot of the data that we have in the periodic setting is for patients with stage three disease. And actually 60 to 70 percent of the patients in most of these studies had stage three disease. And in fact, Neotorch was entirely stage three. But actually, even in stage two patients where the benefit is less, you can see from the meta-analysis that's been done of the studies that included stage two patients, actually the hazard ratio is still very much to the left of that midline. And so the answer to should we be treating perioperative with perioperative chemo IO in stage two disease, the answer is yes. What about PDL1? We've seen consistently that the advantage is greater with those with high levels of PDL1 compared to lower or negative. And again, similarly, similarly in the meta-analysis that was carried out, um, an improvement even in the PDL1 negative patients. So really we're saying these, these treatments are important for all patients. So what are my take home thoughts? Well, for me, Alina with adjuvant electinib for two years after a complete resection in patients with um, out-positive non-small non cell lung cancer, it's a game changer. I do have the question about chemotherapy. We may not have a choice in that because I can imagine that on our blue tech form, we'll have to probably adhere to the trial design. And so it will be a question of electinib or chemotherapy. But would I like to have the option of giving chemotherapy to those patients? Yes, I would. Um, again, in terms of duration of therapy, we're uncertain about that, but we will be, um, it, it will be mandated that we have to stick with the data from the trial, which is two years treatment. In terms of the neoadjuvant and perioperative chemoimmunotherapy era, we can see over the course of the last 12 to 18 months in particular that the body of evidence is just becoming increasingly strong, meeting by meeting. It's particularly strong in those with stage three disease, but I've just demonstrated from that meta-analysis that actually very good data in stage two as well, and in addition to those with, with lower levels of pdl one I think we do need to think about how other diseases have changed their approach to adjuvant and neoadjuvant therapy over the years. And we perhaps need to learn from that and to take on board that neoadjuvant treatment truly is here to stay. And we then have some greater questions. So clearly, I'm, my view is that the neoadjuvant part of the treatment is extremely important. But there's some patients that we may need to be doing more. Is it that we can stick just with neoadjuvant treatment for those that do have a, a, a complete response? And do we have to think about different strategies in those that have a lesser response or have no response at all? Does it make sense if patients have had uh, no response at all to then think about adjuvant immunotherapy or should we be thinking about other agents? And we certainly need more trials in this area. 
And then, of course, there's the other very important issues to do with the duration of the therapy and particularly duration of adjuvant therapy and the balance of toxicity. And that's not just that's not just toxicity in terms of the side effects potentially of treatment. It's also the financial toxicity in terms of how much these drugs cost and also how we manage to deliver those treatments. Because, of course, a year of therapy is quite different for the capacity on a chemotherapy units and clinics compared to three cycles of a neoadjuvant therapy. So with that, I have just about stuck to my time, but I think we have run over Sanjay. Sorry for that. No, that's absolutely fine. We're going to take a few comments and a few questions just because it's so exciting and so important that we go into this. And I agree with you entirely. Alina, totally game changing. We are out testing our operable patients now because, you know, we have 816, uh, which is mandated on, on EGFR health status. We are finding these patients, right? So to be able to give them electinib adjuvantly when it comes through with reimbursement in due course, which I really hope it does, you know, it, it does work out, be absolute travesty for our patients if it doesn't come through, uh, is going to be really important. But chemotherapy, what's your what's your views? I'm like you. We, we've got to give chemo to these stage twos and threes. We only have short follow-up. We have no idea whether it's impacting on overall survival. You need a 10-year horizon to impact on overall survival of these patients. What do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. I'm extremely, in fact, that we took part in Alina and I was very uncomfortable with the patient that we randomized that had stage three disease because he actually it was during COVID. And so we would have struggled a little bit with delivering the chemotherapy. But if it hadn't been during COVID, I would have been really struggling with whether or not um, it was the right thing to do to avoid the chemotherapy. Um, I would still want to be able to deliver chemotherapy to this group of patients. Of course, it's for a conversation, but um, I'm, I, I like you, I want to see that overall survival data. Yeah, so the message from, from the academics is that really we want NHC to, if they are going to approve it on the Bluetech viewpoint, to allow us the flexibility to give chemotherapy if we feel that's indicated. Uh, and when we look, you know, look at the data of 671, we have an overall survival advantage, right? So for me, and I think like you, this has to be a standard of care, right? We've got an overall survival uh, benefit. Four cycles of chemo, not three. Uh, cisplatin, not the option of carboplatin. It's going to be a much more select group of patients, isn't it? It, it is going to be a much more select group of patients. And... I mean, I, I, I am very uncertain about whether we will actually have access to this in the UK. I think it's going to be a really interesting, nice discussion, because when you look at I mean, we should obviously we shouldn't do cross trial comparisons. But when we look at the hazard ratios for disease free survival, overall survival across the neoadjuvant and the perioperative settings, it, it's difficult to see a substantial difference between them. Um, and of course, the cost of a year of adjuvant immunotherapy is not insubstantial. So, I mean, I, I think my concern is that we may not have the choice. Indeed, indeed. So whilst we have the opportunity to maximise our neoadjuvant strategy with 816 funded in the UK, we've got to get our units set up for it. Because I think what we're seeing is overall survival benefits, right? We haven't, across the board, right? We haven't seen that in the adjuvant setting, certainly with pearls and only in a subset with the Impower 110 data. 
And I think the other thing that I'd heard colleagues saying recently is, you know, is neoadjuvant treatment really just a flash in the pan? Are you going to go back to doing just adjuvant treatment soon? And I think I've been really robust in rebutting that and saying, no, neoadjuvant treatment is absolutely here to stay. Here to stay. All right. Yvonne, thank you very much for your uh, attention and thank you for your detail. So, colleagues, here it is. You've heard all about it. There's been lots of data uh, thank you for listening. Uh, uh, I'm delighted to announce our next programme uh, in the BTOC calendar is going to be our study day for new consultants, new oncologists, that is, within five years of CCT, where we're going to be having a one-day course only for new consultant oncologists, is diving into the controversies in managing lung cancer. Click on, oh, when you go to the BTOC website, look on the um, uh, programme, you'll love it do register and it's going to be uh, amazing. Finally, remember to start planning for the BTOG 2024 annual meeting happening again in Belfast between the 17th and 19th of April. Our call for abstracts is currently open. The closing date is going to be Monday the 8th of January. Start getting your data together because we want to see high quality abstracts. We want you on the stage giving that oral presentation. And with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention. Thank you for your time. And as ever, thank you for our speakers for uh, making their time to, to whip everything together and go through uh, all your data. And I look forward to seeing all of you shortly at another BTOG event very soon. Thank you very much. All the best. Bye-bye.